Uh, as a parent of a CNU student, I'm really grateful uh, for our church for helping them out exam week. Um, I would like to add that we should um, have an addendum to bless you uh, to our study break, and that is that they would come. I will tell my son this. I'm like, I want you to come here. I want you to get some pancakes and some bacon. Then I want you to leave and go to the library for several hours. It needs to be something that we include in our deal with them. Um, I, I'm glad to get to fill in for Bob. Um, Bob uh, is away, obviously, and it's great for him, and I think important for him is that we provide ways for our pastor to get to step away. Uh, to recharge his batteries. He told me there were periods of time in his career where he'd have to be here every Sunday for more than a year in a row. Uh, and so it's great for him to get away. I am honored to fill in. Uh, I love Bob. We're good friends. Uh, I have filled in uh, for a lot of people in different places. Uh, one time I was filling in, uh, I don't remember who I was filling in for. It was a number of years ago. And I walked up to, uh, Mike was the guy in the sound booth working the technical stuff like Eric's back there for us now. And I walked up to Mike and I said, Mike, I said, after the talk, that's in Young Life where I work, we call it the talk, we don't say sermon. I said, after the talk, I want you to play this song. And it was, I had a CD, you know, it was back when people where we had CDs. And I said, when the talk is finished, I want you to play this song. It's, you know, number six on the CD or whatever. And he's like, I don't know if I can do that. And I said, well, you know, what's, what's the problem? Is there a technical thing? We got a CD player right here. Is it not working? He's like, no, the CD player's fine. I said, is there a connector? That's, he said, no, it's fine. Um, I said, well, well, what's the issue? And he just says, I, I'm just not sure if I can play that. And I said, is it, do you need to look at the words? Like it's a Christian song. There's nothing inappropriate in it. And it occurs to me as we're having this conversation, Mike, because I'm feeling it, doesn't know I'm the speaker. He thinks I'm just saying, hey, when the guy's done, play this song. It'll be great. <laughs> so I had to learn that. I was like, Mike, oh, I'm the one who's talking. Trust me, it'll be okay. And then he was like, oh, okay, I, I get that. So, so it's happened a number of times. Um, let me tell you a little bit about uh, the heart, uh, where I'm coming from personally with what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, I became a Christian through Young Life in high school, and appropriately and wisely, the people that discipled me at the time, we spent virtually all of our time in the New Testament. We talk, you know, we would talk about Jesus, uh, you know, he's, he's relatable because he's a man, and we would look at some of the, the New Testament letters and things like that, talk, talking about how to follow Christ, like what it looked like to follow Christ. A, a little bit, we would look at some Old Testament things, Psalms, Proverbs, um, one of the things that my leader taught me, Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Great verse. But there wasn't a lot of direct study in the Old Testament. Uh, and so went to college, would hear a little bit more of it, you know, down the road. And then as I got older and I had the opportunity to go to seminary, you know, I began to look at these things and I, and I understood some basic things about the Old Testament, but I didn't understand a lot. And so I remember asking my seminary professors, I'm like, I really want to understand, like, you know, how big picture, how do these things go together? Because on one hand, Jesus is saying, turn the other cheek. And in the Old Testament, Goliath, David is killing Goliath, cutting his head off and raising it up. Like, ah! And I'm like, those, those seem contradictory to me. And I said, I really want to understand how the two go together. And I asked one of my 
Old Testament professors. I said, can you help me understand kind of, because you typically go through a survey class. You know, you start Genesis and you go through everything and you kind of go through. And I said, I want to understand how do they fit together, the, the Old and the New Testament. And my professor said a couple things. He said, here's something you need to remember. Number one, the Old Testament is preparatory. It is pointing to Jesus. I said, okay, all right, that's good. Uh, I said, can you maybe show me how? Like, show me some examples. Uh, and he began to walk us through some different things. And so this morning, what we're going to do, we're going to look at an Old Testament passage. Um, it is, you may have heard of it before. It's not super famous. Uh, and we have three goals with it. The first thing we're going to try to do with this Old Testament passage is we're going to relate it to the gospel. You know, how does this passage that taken out of context seems strange, uh, violent, like a lot of Old Testament passages. How does it fit in? Where does it go with the gospel? The second, second goal is we're going to see the ways that it points to Jesus. And then the third goal is that we would find ways to apply it to our lives. I'm going to pray. I know Jose prayed, but I'm going to pray again because I need it. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, it is of endless depth. There's more there than we will ever comprehend uh, this side of heaven. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless it. Use it for your glory this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to look at Judges chapter 3. If you have a Bible, grab one. Um, I, uh, we're going to have some slides up on the screen. Uh, so eventually we'll get to everything up there. But if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Judges chapter 3. And we're going to be starting in verse 12. Here's what it says. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. This is a theme that you see repeated over and over in the book of Judges. It uses phrase like everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But here what we see is that the Israelites are doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. The Israelites are going through this cycle where they do evil, God sends a judge to help them out of their situation, and this is where we pick it up. He says that he put uh, Eglon, the king of Moab, put him in power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the, of the city of Palms. That's Jericho, just so you know where it is. And it says, the Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. And then verse 15, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer. The first verse we looked at, the first word in verse 12 is again. Here in verse 15, the first word is again. So this is again something you see. It's happening over and over and over. And so it says, he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Jerah the Benjamite. Let me tell you a few things about Ehud. First of all, the previous judge who came to help them out was Othniel. And he came and he, he was from the tribe of Judah. 
He was a, a big, powerful judge, and he's the guy that delivered them before. That is what the Israelites expected. I know Bob has stood up here before and talked about how Jesus was different than they anticipated as a savior because King David was lifted up as the, the example. You know, Jesus was son of David, you know, and that was really important, and that's what they expected. Othniel in this previous passage is the kind of person that they would have expected to come in and save them. Enter Ehud. It says he's a left-handed man. Now, why would the writer include this? Well, to be clear, in Hebrew, the phrase that is written here is not that he's left-handed, meaning that he has a dominant left hand. The phrase that is written, the way that it's written is he could not use his right hand. Okay, that's really important. The right hand was the, was the symbol for power. Jesus is seated at, God, at the Father's right hand. Benjamite, okay, the tribe of Benjamin. A Benjamite means, literally means son of the right hand. So this guy, Ehud, is from a tribe, and he can't even fulfill the name of the tribe because his right hand doesn't work for whatever reason. Doesn't specify, but he can't use it. Think about growing up with the disabled right hand in that time in that culture. Guys are learning how to fight, sword fight, battle. You know, today if you're left-handed, if you can only use your left hand, it doesn't affect you very much. You know, you might have trouble with certain desks. You know, writing on a whiteboard doesn't work, chalk or things like that, but it's not, it's not like it was back then. Back then, he couldn't, you know, people were training with their swords, doing battle, they're learning trades. Ehud can't use his right hand at all. Uh, and I'm sure he sat there and he watched. He goes, man, I just, if I, just my right hand would work. But that's important that the writer puts that in there that he's left-handed. The other thing that would be important with this is, Bob has talked about this. Remember when somebody was sick back then, where they had any kind of issue, one of the things that people believed was some sin that they committed or some sin that their parents committed. So not only is he dealing with this disability, but he's dealing with the cloud over him and his family that this disability represents. And this is the person that God selects to send. Okay, let's keep going. It says the Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. So Ehud is gonna travel to see Eglon. It says, now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long. That's about a foot and a half, about 18 inches, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. Now, this is where the part that he's left-handed comes in again. Hang with me because this will come together and be really cool. He's got this strapped to his right thigh. When Ehud would go in to be searched, and you would always, before you go see the king, you would, they would always search you. you know, they'd frisk you or whatever. But what they would do, because everybody was right-handed, they would always search the left side, because to draw your sword, you would pull from across your body to the left side. They don't know Ehud can't use his right hand. So when he comes in, they search the wrong side. So Ehud has this sword on the right side where they never would have looked. And he's got it hidden there. And so this very thing, this, this disability, this weakness that everyone would have perceived becomes a strength and sort of the way that he's able to get in to see Eglon. 
Let's keep going. It says, he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who is a very fat man. Thanks for including that, I guess. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. And then it says in verse 19, but on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon. Now, let me explain what's going on. Ehud goes in. He's got the sword. They didn't find it. He goes in and he gives tribute, a little a, a gift for Eglon. And then, for reasons it doesn't say, he leaves. He, he, gets, he, he, he sends the people away that he's with, and, he, and he, he just starts walking back. Gilgal, just so you know, when it says he gets to Gilgal, that's 25 miles away. So he walked for 25 miles after he left Eglon. He's there, he's got the sword, he's ready to do it. I don't know if he lost his nerve, had second thoughts, and he leaves. Think of times in your life when you feel like God has, has given you a task or an opportunity and you have let it pass right by. That's what happens to Ehud. He gets there and he's like, he can't do it. And he leaves. But something great happens when he gets to Gilgal. Now, what's the significance of it? Well, here's what it is. Joshua 4.19. I'm going to read a couple verses here. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, What do these stones mean? Tell them Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. God gave the Israelites room, and they set up this little monument. Incidentally, these little stone monuments, the, 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 uh, the word they use is Ebenezer, okay? These little stone, Ebenezer means stone of help, and it's to signify what God has done. Now, you've probably heard the word Ebenezer in one context your whole life, and that is Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, right? Well, Ebenezer Scrooge, the, Dickens wrote that, that, that uh, book as, a, as an example of God working in someone's life. Charles Dickens was a believer. And so Ebenezer Scrooge, it's Ebenezer's, look at what God has done. And uh, Christmas Carol, he did it in one night with the three spirits. But that's where it comes from, Ebenezer. So Ehud is coming, and he's, he's 25 miles away. I'm sure he's kicking himself. He's frustrated. He's disappointed. Can't believe he had his shot, and he blew it. And he gets to Gilgal, where there's supposed to be these stones that Joshua set up. And instead, here's what he sees. But on reaching the stone images near Gogol, the stone images were not the things that Joshua had built. These were now Moabite idols. And so he walks his 25 miles, he gets there, and where there's supposed to be this great remembrance of what God has done, he sees these Moabite idols. And it wrecks him. It wrecks him. He sees this thing, and, he, it's, and it just, he can't 
live with it in, in that way anymore. And so he turns and he goes back. Uh, I've heard pastors refer to this as his holy discontent. What is your holy discontent? What is the thing in, that, that God has put on your heart in a way that's like, you know what, I am not okay with this. For me, it's lost teenagers. That, that a lot of the world hasn't figured out how to care for lost, I can't stand it. You know, I look at every, every high school, middle school, college I drive by as a mission field. It just, it's, you know, it's the thing that God has put on my heart. Ehud gets there, and he sees these things, and he can't stand it. When I was a kid, a lot of you won't remember this, looking at the front few rows, but further back, I see some people that'll remember this guy. There was a, a cartoon character named Popeye the Sailor Man. I think we're supposed to have a picture of Popeye. There he is. Here's what would happen to Popeye. Popeye would be going along, dealing with whatever, olive oil, you know, that's his girlfriend, and uh, something would happen, and he would get madder and madder, and then, it, and then he would always say this. He would say, I can't stands it. I can't stands it anymore, and he would go, and they'd play the Popeye the Sailor Man music, and he would go, and he would get his spinach. He would eat his spinach, and then he would go and cartoon rampage all over the bad guys. That is what, that's what happens to Ehud here, is he gets here, he goes, I can't, I will not take this anymore. I can't stand it. And he walks 25 miles back. Here's where we pick it up. It said, but on reaching the stone images near Gogol, he himself went back to Eglon and said, your majesty, I have a secret message for you. Secret, really attractive when somebody says that. Hey, I've got something just between you and me. The king said to his attendants, leave us. And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. Maybe getting to Eglon to lean in a little bit closer. It said, as the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. It says, even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. I searched and searched for thinking, okay, how does this connect to the, Old Te the New Testament with the blade going in and the fat? I found nothing. <laughs> it's just really gross, and a detail that they put in there for, I don't know why. Dramatic effect, maybe? Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him, and he locked them. Now, I want to give us a couple of thoughts on Eglon. Why is Eglon so vulnerable? Well, he's sort of the picture of somebody that you think would be complacent, lazy. You know, he, he's, he's, he has no concern or fear that Ehud is a threat to him. I mean, they searched Ehud, in fairness. But he's just, the, the, when you hear the phrase, he's fat and happy. He's unchallenged. And I think for you and I, he is a good reminder of what kind of attitude can get us into trouble. And, I, and what I mean is, I mean like, like in terms of when you think about temptation, when you're really satisfied and complacent and don't feel any threat, it's easier to be tempted. You know, it's, it's a lot It's a lot simpler when you're like totally content. And this guy has no concern. 
Is your spirit unguarded right now? Are you sitting there today thinking, ah, Thanksgiving was fun, I ate a lot, hung out with my family, got a little downtime today? You know, are you a little more vulnerable than you should be? Are you overconfident? Do you feel like, oh man, I know a lot of scripture? One of the really amazing things Eglon does, and I think is a really important example for us, Ehud comes back and Eglon says, after he says, I've got a secret message, Eglon says to his attendants, go away, leave us in private. Do you have people around you that you can be honest with? Do you feel spiritually isolated right now? Because when you are, you're many times more vulnerable. Where have you become too comfortable? Where are you losing good judgment, making bad decisions, allowing mediocrity in and settling for less than what God has for you? Are you too comfortable? Is it affecting your passion for Jesus? For lost people? Is it affecting your integrity? I'm comfortable I can maybe go around this corner. Don't need to, maybe can cut that corner a little bit. What about your courage to take risks? Are you putting yourself in a position as you're following Jesus where you have to take risks? If you're sitting there spiritually fat and happy, you need to recognize that. Eglon is all this, and he isolates himself, and he's wide open for attack. And if we do the same thing, so will we be. So Ehud kills him. It says he went out to the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. Then they saw their Lord fallen to the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. So why did God choose Ehud to be the one to deliver the Israelites? I think there's a number of reasons. I think one of the things we need to recognize is God's economy is not the same as ours. We look for certain things in leaders. God looks for different things. In 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16, they're seeking, they're going to they're figure out who the new king is. It says, it, uh, 1 Samuel 16, I'll read starting in verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. He sees him and is like, oh, this is what a king looks like. He's tall, he's good looking. This is what he looks like. Incidentally, in America, chief executive officers of, com- of companies have one significant thing in common, CEOs. Does anybody know what it is? Just raise your hand if you know what it is. 
You know what it is? Oh, I, my wife knows because she's heard this, me say this before. Marnie, do you know? Oh, I saw somebody. This is interesting. They're all tall. Think about that. When you put on a resume, do you put your height on it? <laughs> but for CEOs, and it's something about they come in and I guess they command respect because they're tall. That's true, male or female. They're tall. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Isn't that fantastic? God, 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 doesn't, God doesn't work the way we work. His economy is not our economy. He goes and selects this guy, Ehud, who would be unqualified in most people's eyes. And he says, this is the guy I'm going to use. This is the guy that I'm going to use to set Israel free. Remember, he's a guy with a withered right hand or a right hand that doesn't work. He poses no threat. His greatest source of shame and insecurity, Ehud, growing up without being able to use his right hand, is in fact the tool that God gave him that will redeem his people. If his right hand had worked, he never would have been allowed in to see the king. This is a, a quote from a theologian named Michael Wilcock. If Ehud cannot wield a weapon on his right side, all assume he cannot wield one at all. This is why he is admitted to the presence of the king when he asks for a private audience. Because of his deformity, he presents no security risk to the Moabite. Now, is it possible that the thing that you think disqualifies you from ministry is the same thing that the Lord most wants to use? What is it, uh, I can't do because of this. I can't, what is that? Is it possible that that's the thing the Lord most wants to use? That your greatest source of shame or fear could be, with God's economy, your greatest asset. For Ehud, it was his hand. Spent his life an outcast and was isolated because of it. But this was actually an asset, not a weakness. What is it for you? What is, it, what is that thing that you think might disqualify you from ministry? Your background? Your gifts and talents? Your education? Maybe you feel like you're not outgoing enough? Your race? Your ethnic background? thinking, man, I really want to minister to this group, but the way I look, that would never work. What if that thing, that thing that you dread being exposed is what the Lord is most interested, not only in redeeming, but in using? I think you're starting to see where the gospel and Jesus comes to life in this passage. Now, how does Ehud point us to Jesus. What type of savior was Jesus? Was he the kind of savior that was expected at the time? No, not at all. Isaiah 53, two through three says this. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. What type of savior was Jesus? In many ways, he was a left-handed savior. 
He did not possess the traits that people thought he should. He was the greater Ehud. He didn't use deception or have to murder, but he was murdered. Now, if we've got a left-handed Savior, what kind of people does that left-handed Savior save? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Listen to this. I love this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. That's us. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Tim Keller says this. Bob and I are both big Tim Keller fans. We get together in his office. We talk about Tim Keller books. I'm not making that. That's totally true. Uh, he says, God uses, Tim Keller says, God uses a left-handed savior to save left-handed people. And then he also says, God is a God of grace. God is a, God is a God of grace, not works. He takes and uses people on the margins of society in order to show them that salvation is from him and not our own abilities. Do you think you're not good enough? Think you're not funny enough, not smart enough? Good news, you're right, you're not. Neither am I. But you are exactly the type of person that God wants to use. And that thing that you're most insecure about, your cause of pain or shame, some great defeat in your life, that's the very thing that God is interested in using. That's the story of Ehud. That's, that's the gospel and the person of Jesus revealed in the Old Testament in this passage. I'm gonna tell one story and then we'll wrap up. Um, after the raid on Pearl Harbor, uh, the United States was determined to strike back at Japan. And they came up with something. If people like, if you're a history fan like I am, you'll know all about this. But we decided we were gonna bomb Japan, which was a very ambitious uh, endeavor. And we literally took these uh, B-24 bombers that were land-based, and we figured out how to take, have them take off on an aircraft carrier. And we, they flew from the Pacific and, and went to Japan. Jimmy Doolittle was the guy in charge of it. It's famously known now as the Doolittle Raid. Well, they take off. They had to take off earlier than they thought. And honestly, when the, when the planes took off, they didn't know. They thought there were some people that thought they were going to take off from the aircraft carrier and plop down in the water, you know. Uh, but th as they took off, they were able to go airborne. They had to take off early because somebody saw them, and they're like, we got to get these planes in the air and get out of here. So he saved the aircraft carrier. And they flew. And as they're getting to Japan, they figure out they're not, they were supposed to go to Japan, drop their bombs, and then go to China. But they realize they don't have enough fuel to do that. In most cases, they're not going to have enough fuel. And so they go, they drop their bombs, and, and they, they hit their targets. And, and, then, and it was incredibly shocking for the Japanese. They thought they were untouchable. The fact that we could bomb Tokyo for them just psychologically was an enormous piece in the war. And our pilots then go on fumes, and they're trying to get to China. Uh, they have these landing spots. None of them is going to get close to those. So essentially, they crash-landed in China. And some of the people uh, got away. Many were captured. Uh, there was a man named Jacob DeShazer, okay? He was a, a navigator on one of these planes. 
Jacob DeSager is crash lands in China, and he and the other people in his plane get uh, captured by the Japanese. And they go to a Japanese prison camp, which are, in terms of World War II, like the, that was the last place you wanted to be if you were a soldier, was a Japanese prison camp. Starvation, torture, they would bring it all. And DeShazer endures torture for years. They had four men from his plane. They executed two of them because I think they executed the pilot and the bombardier because they said, you've committed crimes against Japan, against the people of Japan. So they killed those two. So Jacob and his one other guy are left. And he starts asking for things to read. And the Japanese bring him things, magazines or whatever. And finally, one of them brings him a Bible. And he starts reading this thing, okay? Think about, like, I, here's, when I sit down to read my Bible, I like to have a cup of coffee. I've got a little spot in the corner of my living room, and I sit there, and I sip my coffee. It's quiet, and I'm reading my Bible, you know, and I don't read, you know, you know I read different sections. This guy's in a hut in a Japanese prison camp enduring torture. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. I think Bob put that up here last week. And the Word of God works in Jacob the Shazer. He says to God in the prison camp, Lord, he, becomes, he just says, Jesus, you're it. I'm going to follow you. He says, if you get me out of this, I will do whatever you want. But I'll tell you, he hated the Japanese. I mean, they're torturing him every day. That, that builds up some tension you know, relationally. We win the war. The Shazer is freed and says, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? God says, I want you to go back to Japan and be a missionary. DeShazer says, is there, you know, is that, is there plan B? How about, is there another place? You know, I hear, you know, Africa's got some issues. Can we go there? God's like, no, 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 you're going back to Japan. Here's what's incredible. God sends Jacob DeShazer back to Japan. He's a missionary there for more than 30 years. Leads countless people to Christ. One of the people that he led to Christ who became uh, he would say his closest friend in the world was a guy named Mitsuo Fushida. And if you're into history, you might know that name. He is the pilot that led the raid on Pearl Harbor. And their friendship was a testimony to Jesus Christ. He led Fushida to Christ. Their friendship was a testimony. But here's the thing. Jacob DeShazer was, was the last guy that you would think God would want to send to Japan. Jacob DeShazer didn't want to go, but God used him. There are so many examples of God taking the unlikely person. We've heard the phrase, God doesn't call the qualified, he, he qualifies the called. That's you and I. That's you and I. I'm going to pray, and then I think, uh, Jose, you're going to come back up or close it out? All right. Father, thank you for this morning, for the gift of your word. Thank you that, uh, Jesus, you are alive and well in the Old Testament, uh, and that you point us, all things point to you.